Turn in your Bible to Psalm 14. That will be the passage that we're studying today. We'll be looking at a few different spots, but focused here in Psalm 14. As we've made our way through the Psalms, we've studied a number of them where the author, David, is crying out to God on his behalf or on behalf of the nation of Israel about the problem of evil around them. Psalm 3, Psalm 5, 7, 10, 12, and 13 all paint a picture of the people of God in conflict with others who seek their harm. Psalm 3, verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. In Psalm 10, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. In each of these cases, as well as with Psalm 14, the drama unfolds with three primary actors. The first is the wicked, or the people who are not God's people in Psalm 14, described as the fool. Uh, The second, we see the people of God. The people of God. And the third is God himself. Now, Psalm 14 contains these elements that are typical in a lament psalm, but there's also a twist with Psalm 14. It also contains truth that we would typically see in a wisdom psalm, where the way of the wicked is contrasted with the way of the righteous. So if you put it all together, what we're going to be able to see today and we're going to be able to understand and be reminded that in the midst of a dark trial or even unrelenting evil, God is on his throne. He's at work for the good of his people. And he always keeps his promises. Therefore, even when our faith is weak, and perhaps especially when our faith is weak, And when we don't understand perhaps what God is doing, his unchanging character, his track record of steadfast love, and the truth of his covenant promises provide a sure and eternal refuge for us. And these truths enable us to trust and even rejoice in any and all circumstances. All right? So, uh, if this feels like review, perhaps, from some of the Psalms that we've reviewed previously... That's because it is. And the Lord is so wise. He knows that the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in Rancho Cucamonga in 2021 need to be reminded of these truths again and again and again. So let's read Psalm 14. Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Hebrew text here literally reads, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. Well, how, how can that be? The evidence for God is 
everywhere. Let's just take a quick look at some of the evidences for God that we see all around us. First, generally in Revelation, God has revealed himself in his creation, in the things that he's made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above declare his handiwork. That's from Psalm 19. Everything that God created is to point us to him. And specifically within that creation, God created human beings fearfully and wonderfully made. Doesn't matter how terrible you feel this morning, what age you are, what kind of shape you're in, you are a living, breathing wonder. Consider just a few of these things. I've been listening to a book called The Body, an Owner's Manual. And I want you to consider just a few of the mind-boggling facts about your earthly temple that declare that God exists and that he is a glorious and creative and powerful designer. Listen to this. You have 37.2 trillion cells, approximately, in your body, constantly being created and destroyed, all performing different jobs to keep you alive. If you unraveled and laid out all the DNA in your body from end to end, it would stretch 10 billion miles with a B, billion. That's reaching beyond Pluto's orbit, which is a long way away. Your heart will beat about 3.5 billion times in your lifetime. And when your heart beats, it pumps blood through your circulatory system made up of blood vessels called arteries, capillaries, and veins. If you were to lay these vessels from end to end, they would stretch over 60,000 miles. Your brain inside your skull, scientists estimate that can hold about 200 exabytes of information. 200 exabytes of information at the time of this writing about three years ago that was roughly equal to the digital content of our world. And somehow I can't remember the third item that Jody wanted me to pick up at the store. But anyway, it's amazing, right? Our bodies, and this is just a fraction of the amazing truths of what God did when he created man and women. But it's not just our physical bodies. God gave people a conscience. We are made in the image of God, and he stamped his law on our hearts. Romans chapter 2 says that we have his law on our hearts, and that either accuses or excuses us. So we have the general revelation of God in creation, in the amazing people that he has created in his image. He's given them a conscience. But more than that, he has specifically revealed himself. He did so in the Old Testament. And then he, when Christ came, Christ was God with us, God in the flesh. He perfectly demonstrated God's awesome power, unchanging holiness, perfect justice, and amazing love. He lived the perfect life. He died the death on the cross and then conquered death by rising from the grave. And if that's not enough, God has given us his perfect word in the Bible. He has given us his perfect word in the Bible, a sure and eternal word, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, spoken and preserved by God himself, written down by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All of this evidence and so much more that screams at us that God exists. He is glorious. And yet we read here in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, no God. Why is that? Well, as we think about the word for fool, the word for fool, there's three of them in the Old Testament. All of them don't speak of intellectual ability or intellectual shortcomings. The word fool has a moral orientation to it. It speaks of someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom. 
The word here in Psalm 14 is nabal, meaning foolish, senseless, impious, wicked. There's actually a man in 1 Samuel 25 whose name was Nabal. He was described as harsh and badly behaved, and even his own wife declared that his name is fool and he's filled with folly. Hey, just dads and moms, as an aside, don't, don't name your kid Nabal, right? It's mean. It's mean. Well, listen, the fool declares there is no God. This declaration made in his or her heart is a moral statement, not an intellectual one. It's a conclusion based on the will, not the intellect. The desire behind this declaration is to live independently of God, to live without reference to him. The fool is one who chooses never to think of God being involved with his or her daily affairs. In essence, the fool is someone who declares, there is no God for me. Listen to what Psalm 10, 3, and 4 says. For the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The title of fool, the title of fool is not determined by the definition of atheist, someone who declares there is absolutely no God. It's not defined by someone who says, oh, I'm an agnostic, someone who believes that God might exist but can't really be known. For that matter, a fool could be someone who is highly religious, reads their Bible, and attends church every Sunday. The fundamental characteristic of the fool in Psalm 14 is a practical or functional atheism that rules their heart and life. A practical or functional atheism that rules their heart and life. Now, how, do we, how should we understand this? Turn with me uh, away from Psalm, Psalm 14. Keep your finger there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. How does this happen? In spite of all of the evidence that God provides, generally, specifically, How does this happen? How does a fool say there is no God? Romans 1, verses 19 through 22 gives a good explanation for us. Go ahead and start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In their unrighteousness, the fool suppresses the truth. Although the fool knows God, the fool doesn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Listen to this. When you deny, defy, or politely ignore your creator and owner, it is inevitable that your thinking will become futile and your foolish heart will be darkened. It's inevitable. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about a fool. The theme of the book of Proverbs is found in chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge, but the fool despises it, treats it as unimportant. What is this fear of the Lord that leads to knowledge and results in wisdom that the fool rejects? It starts with acknowledging who God is, creator, owner, judge, savior. And then it's paired with a right response to him, standing in awe of him, revering him, trusting him, loving him, treasuring him, surrendering all to him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise that wisdom. They treat God's wisdom and God himself as unimportant or of no consequence to them. That's the heart that says, no God for me. So that's the heart of a fool that we see in verse 1. But that's not all. Let's look a little bit more at the portrait of a foolish person. That's right. Did I neglect to say that that was our first point? The portrait of a foolish person? I did. Forgive me. Our first point that I started like, you know, seven minutes ago is the portrait of a foolish person. So we'll continue not just seeing the heart of the, uh, of the foolish person, but we will see the character. The declaration that there is no God is not merely theoretical. It's extremely practical. If the posture of someone's heart is that there is no God or is that God has no influence or authority in their life, let's see how their character is described. The second part of verse 1, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When an individual says in their heart, there is no God, it only follows that their character will be incompatible with his nature. The word corrupt here is a very strong word. It literally means to ruin or devastate. It's the same term used in Genesis chapter 6, 11, which says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. This was before the flood. God saw that the earth was corrupt. It was so great. Wickedness was so great, so pervasive, so ruinous. He said the only remedy is to judge. This word was also used in Exodus chapter 32 to describe the Israelites who had corrupted themselves when they fashioned and worshipped the golden calf when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai. So they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Now, abominable is not a word that we use very often unless we're talking about yetis. We're not talking about yetis this morning, Sean. All right? Abominable, in this context, is defined by theologian Alan Ross. He says this, describes something that is incompatible with God and his order of life. Beyond that, it describes things that are dangerous, grotesque, out of place, and repulsive. So the one who ignores God, living as if God doesn't exist, cannot simply live a life of self-indulgence. Even that will be made perverse and corrupt. And the end of verse 1 provides a summary statement that says, there is none who does good. There is none who does good. And you know, just in case we, we thought, no, wait a second, that can't be true. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe that's a point just to kind of really drive it home. Maybe that's just one person's opinion. Let's see what verse 2 has to say. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or act wisely, who seek after God. What if we call God to the witness stand? What does he see? God, who sees all and knows all, is described here as looking down from heaven. Now, don't be confused here. God is spirit, so he doesn't have eyes. 
and God knows all, so he doesn't have to take a closer look. Right? So understand they're using human language to describe God here. Rather, the use of this expression is a way to communicate how thorough God's knowledge is of sin and how inexcusable the sin of a fool is. What does the Lord see? Are there any who understand? Are there any who act wisely? Are there any who submit themselves willingly, gladly, and humbly to his lordship? He looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What's his conclusion? Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. Again, really strong words. This word corrupt conveys something that's putrid, like a rotting carcass or sour milk. There is none who does good, not even one. Listen, when Jody tells me to look for something in the fridge, there's a chance I might not find it. There's a chance. But when the all-knowing, all-seeing God looks for something and it's not there, it doesn't exist, right? In the strongest language possible, without limitation or exception, God's verdict on every single man and woman apart from him is total and universal corruption. Total and universal corruption. Theologian P.C. Craigie says this, The fool is not a subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. All right? So that's the portrait of a fool. The fool declares in his or her heart, there is no God for me. From that, their character is corrupt and abominable. They fail to act wisely. They've all turned aside from God. Together they have become corrupt. They don't seek God. They don't fear God. No one does good, not even one. This is a pretty, a pretty bleak portrait. Not a pretty picture. And this leads us to our next point, which is the problem of the fool. So we looked at the portrait of the fool, and now we're going to look at the problem of the fool. What is the fundamental issue or problem for the fool? So we've looked at the first few verses. What Psalm 14 says about the heart and the character of the fool. Now we're going to zoom out a little bit. We're going to zoom out theologically a little bit to think about the fundamental problem for all men and women apart from God. And this is a really important topic, so much so that these verses are actually used in the Bible. God includes them in his scripture three separate times. First, in Psalm 14. Second, in Psalm 53, which is almost an exact replica of Psalm 14. And then in Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 12, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the fundamental problem of every single man, woman, and child apart from God. So here it is. The fundamental problem apart from God can be summed up in two words. Two words. Radical corruption. Radical corruption. Sometimes uh, people call it total depravity. That's fine too. We're going to use radical corruption this morning. I'm going to define it for you with the help of Dr. Piper, he describes it this way. Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong 
as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. This inability to save ourselves from ourselves is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, give us eyes to see, and effectively draw us to the Savior. Consider the following verses. There's lots of them. We're just going to talk about a few. You can write these down. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in trespasses and sins. The clear teaching of the Bible is that apart from God, separate from God, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions and desires, our hearts, our goals and motives, even our physical bodies. Our desire is for sin, and we are unable to do anything about it. That is, the unregenerate person doesn't have the desire nor the ability to love, seek, or submit to spiritual truth. Well, now you might say, okay, I get it. But what about all the unsaved people I know that are genuinely nice and kind Well, let's be clear. Radical corruption doesn't mean that people can't do nice or kind or moral things on a human level. Mankind is made in the image of God. And though that image is marred and broken by sin, it still exists. It's still present. God's common grace and kindness extends to all of his humanity. And we're so thankful for kind neighbors and for colleagues who act with integrity. In fact, a civil society relies upon this fact. But it doesn't change the fundamental problem that we're talking about. So we want to think about it this way. And uh, pastor and blogger Tim Challies has a helpful object lesson that I'm going to use. I have three bottles here. Three bottles here. This first bottle is pure, clean water. This represents the state of man before the fall, before sin entered into the world. Clean, pure, without the stain of sin. All right, that's bottle number one. Bottle number two, we put a drop of red food coloring in. This represents poison, all right? That if anyone were to drink even the smallest sip of this, they would drop dead instantly. This red food coloring representing poison represents the extent of human corruption. This bottle is mostly filled with water, but one drop of this poison has corrupted all of it. You understand? All humanity, apart from God, is corrupt in extent. They're not as bad as they possibly can be. This whole bottle isn't filled with poison, but one drop is enough to corrupt them completely and thoroughly in extent. Even good deeds are tainted by this corruption. And it's really important as we, know, as we think about this fundamental problem of the fool or those apart from God is that it's the extent of corruption that condemns even the best men to hell, not the degree, all right? And that brings us to our third bottle. The degree 
which is represented by lots more drops of red food coloring, is corruption by degree, completely. This whole thing is filled with the deadly poison. That would represent someone like the devil, who's as bad as, they can, as he can possibly be. Humans are not as corrupt as they possibly can be, again, because of God's kindness and his common grace to them. But we must note that unless people repent, they're on their way to a Christless eternity in hell, at which point they will be as bad as they can possibly be. And what a terrifying thought that is and ought to motivate us to share the good news of the gospel with them. All right? So that's a a brief summary of radical corruption. The problem of the fool in Psalm 14 that we've read here is the problem of every single man, woman, and child, radical corruption. And this problem is so great that no human effort or measures to remedy the problem will suffice. Any human solution will be woefully inadequate to deal with a problem this pervasive, this intensive, this extensive, this deep. What is needed? What is needed? The only remedy is supernatural. And that's why when the New Testament talks about the remedy for our corruption, it uses supernatural language. Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. You must be born again. In 2 Corinthians 5, we understand that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Ephesians chapter 2, we understand and we read that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means that we need a resurrection. New birth, new creation, new life. Those are things that only God can do. So let's step back here. We've looked at the portrait of the fool. We've seen the fundamental problem of the fool. Let's just make a couple points of application. The first is repent. Repent. Perhaps you're here today and the portrait of a fool in Psalm 14 describes you. You say, you know what? That's me. I've been living independently from God. Perhaps shaking my fist at God or politely ignoring him. I'm pleading with you to repent. Turn from your sin. Cry out to God for mercy. He is your only hope. Your corruption is too great too pervasive for you to simply try to clean up your act a little bit or try to figure out a way to cleanse yourself. It will never work. And this is why the good news of the gospel is so glorious. If we are to understand the nature of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, we first have to understand how terrible the bad news is. And that's why it's important that we look honestly at the truths here in Psalm 14. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came And he lived the perfect life that you could never live. And then he died the death on the cross that you deserve. He died in your place. And then three days later, he rose again. He did this so that your sin can be exchanged for his righteousness. So that you can be born again. So that you can be a completely new creation. So that your spiritually dead heart can be resurrected. But again, you can't do this on your own. Repentance and faith. Our spiritual and spiritual life are gifts of God by grace through faith. So come to God. Ask him for mercy to forgive your sin. Place your full faith and trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. When you come to him, he promises to never cast you out. 
Now to my brothers and sisters, there's an application for here, and us, here for us as well. There's an opportunity for us to examine our lives and to repent as well. It's possible for Christians to live as functional atheists. To believe in our hearts all the essential gospel truths, but then by our actions or by our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, or even the way we cherish certain sin to live as though God doesn't exist. Are you a functional atheist? Counselor Paul David Tripp offers some helpful questions to help us discern this. In the midst of life's challenges, do you view God as small, distant, disconnected, uncaring, and seemingly unwise? Is your life or certain parts of it defined by cynicism, doubt, fear, discouragement, anxiety, or worry? This week, how many thoughts did you have? Words did you speak or decisions did you make that omitted the Lord from your process entirely? Do you tend to measure the size and nearness of God by assessing your circumstances? How long has it been since you've stood in awe before the infinite grandeur of God? Is there an area of your life where you're cherishing sin and refusing to confess and forsake it? Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, you're not the fool described in Psalm 14, but it's quite possible that you need to repent of functional atheism. If that's the case, run to the Savior. He is merciful, he is compassionate, and faithful and just to forgive. One more point of application, and then we'll move on to our third point. We don't just perhaps need to repent before God, but it's important for us to remember as we think about the problem of the fool and the problem with radical corruption, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 calls us to remember. It says, remember that at that one time we were separated from Christ, alienated, having no hope and without God in the world. Meditating on these truths, the really bad news of our condition before Christ, should humble us and make us profoundly and eternally grateful. Christian author Rebecca Stark says this, Total depravity or radical corruption is both the nastiest and loveliest of truths. Because it's only by seeing exactly what I was that I can understand what has been done for me. Knowing the depth of God's love comes only as I fathom how far he had to stoop to grasp me. So remember and be grateful. We've got one more point to complete from Psalm 14. We've covered the portrait of the fool. We've looked at the problem of the fool. Now let's take a look at the perspective of the righteous. The perspective of the righteous. Now, you may remember in the introductions, I mentioned that in various lament psalms, there's a conflict between the people of God and those who oppose or mistreat them. And, and we see this in verse 4, verse 4, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? And in verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor. You see, the, the problem of evil for the people of God isn't abstract. And the whole point of this psalm isn't just to develop a biblical view of anthropology. It certainly includes that, and we're thankful for that. But we have to understand there's a rubber meets the road 
type element to this psalm. And so we need to remember that in the midst of challenges, trials, evil, opposition, we don't want to live like the fool, as if there's no God. Rather, we want to entrust every part of our life to him. There's wisdom for the people of God as we do that. So let's look at four truths here under the perspective of the righteous that ought to give us perspective in any and every circumstance. The first is found in verse 2. It's God's power. You may remember, the Lord looks down from heaven. And we use this to talk about the fool, that the Lord looked down from heaven to see if there are any who are righteous. We said all have turned aside. But for the child of God, the fact that the Lord looks down from heaven ought to fill us with great joy. Our God dwells in heaven. Our God reigns. He is high and lofty above all things. Every person, every ruler, every nation, every ideology, every corporation, every government, from now until time is no more. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. For the fool, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God looking down from heaven only brings terror and judgment. But for the child of God, it ought to bring great comfort and confidence. Listen to these verses. First from Psalm 33. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. The perspective that we have should be influenced and shaped by the power of God who reigns from heaven and whose eye is on his children. It's not just the power of God, though. It's also God's presence. Verse 5, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So for the fool, living apart from God brings an inevitable fear of judgment described here as great terror. But God is with the generation of the righteous. And that phrase, those three words, God is with, are bursting with meaning. The fact that God is with his people is much more than geographical proximity, right? Like that would be cool and a reason for confidence and joy, but it includes so much more than that. Um, Listen, if you want to be massively encouraged in your walk with Christ, just do a study on what it means for God to be with his people. In part, it means he's for them. He's going to show them favor. He will act in accordance with his covenant promises. He is their joy and satisfaction. He will help. He will uphold. He will strengthen in each and every circumstance. Listen to just a couple couple verses here, and we're just going to scratch the surface here. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And isn't it wonderful that one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel? God with us. 
It wasn't just enough that God wanted to send Jesus for him to tabernacle among us and live among us. He said, one of your names is going to be God with us, lest you forget. And what did Jesus say before he returned to heaven? One of the last things he said to his disciples, go and make other disciples. And then what did he say? Do you remember? I am with you always to the end of the age. And just in case you think this truth that God is with us is kind of abstract, kind of theoretical, all about Thomas Kincaid plaques that you might put on your wall somewhere, footsteps in the sand, that type thing, right? No, no, it's immensely practical that God is with his people. Listen to Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that amazing? That he says, be content with what you have. Why? And what, is, what provides the ability for you to be content? It's the presence of God with his children. So God is with his people, and we know the end of all things is described in, in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. In the future, there is coming a day in the kingdom of God where the dwelling place of God will be with man in fullness. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's amazing. Psalm 14 reminds us of God's power, also his presence. And then in verse 6, we see God's protection. We see God's protection. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Do you again see the contrast between the fool and the people of God? It's almost like David's getting a little punchy here, right? Sure, you're the ones devouring God's people like bread, gobbling them up on a regular basis as casually as you would your next meal, but the Lord is powerful. He reigns from heaven. And it's the wicked, not the righteous, who are in great terror because God is with the righteous. And you evildoers would want to shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. The Lord is a warrior, a protector, a place of safety. He is absolutely trustworthy. Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. But it's not just, it's not just protection. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 22, none of those who take refuge in you will be condemned. Listen, the people of God, they may be poor, They may be oppressed, mistreated, abused, marginalized, battered and bruised by trials. Their plans may be shamed. They may be thwarted. But God's plan for his people will never be thwarted. His plan for his people will never be stopped. God's people know the absolute protection of God. They've tasted of his goodness. They know his covenant favor and the blessing of taking refuge in God. So God's power, his presence, his protection, and then verse 7. Let's look at his promise of redemption. God's promise of redemption. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, Zion was the earthly residence of God. 
the place where God dwelled with his people, where he heard their prayers and demonstrated his power. The psalmist here is longing for God to restore his people, to grant complete deliverance. And there was certainly an immediate request here. But the cool thing here is that it's also a reference to the future salvation of Israel through the Messiah and God's promise to reestablish the kingdom. Where is the Messiah going to reign? Psalm 2.6, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And Micah 4 verse 7 says, The Lord will reign in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you know what's even cooler? I'm going to tell you. As believers, one with the Messiah, we get to share in this abundantly prosperous, restored physical kingdom someday as well. So when we sing the song, we will feast in the house of Zion, we're being very literal and very biblical. That was not just the future for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's our future as well. And you see here the absolute confidence that God is going to be faithful to his promises. What word does David use? Does he say, if God restores the fortunes of his people, if the Lord comes through? No, he says, when. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. This confidence is rock solid, as if it's already happened, even though the fulfillment is still in the future. I don't know about you, but that gives me great encouragement, because often, that's, that's where I live, right? We ought to and need to cling to God's promises, even when they are fulfilled immediately, when they are in the future. So that's a quick summary of Psalm 14. We've seen the Portrait of the fool. The portrait of the fool says there's no God, lives without reference to God. The problem of the fool, radical corruption, enslavement to sin, and unable to do anything about it apart from the sovereign grace of God in their lives. And then we've seen the perspective of the righteous. The perspective of the righteous that regardless of what's going on around them, they can entrust every single part of their lives to God. So we'll make one final point of application, then we'll be done. The last part of verse 7. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And we've got so many reasons to rejoice. Let me just quickly review. The Lord is powerful. Our God is powerful. He reigns from heaven. The Lord is present. He is with the righteous. The Lord is protector. He is a sure and trustworthy refuge. And the Lord is a promise keeper. He will restore the fortunes of his people. Are you a joyful person? Do you rejoice in the Lord? You can be, and you should be, when you live in light of these truths. Psalm 5, 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us a vivid and true and realistic picture 
of the bad news of humanity apart from Christ. It makes the good news and the glorious news that much more wonderful, that much more amazing. So, Lord, give us grace. If we need to repent, help us to cry out to you. Help us to remember where we were and to be so thankful and to rejoice in you in any and every circumstance. In Jesus' name.